Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited to host today, Jonathan Javit, the CEO and co-founder of NeuroRx. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, maybe to kick us off, would love it if you could give us a quick intro on yourself and your background and how you got to where you are today. Well, I've got a bit of a checkered past. I started out in clinical medicine, clinical ophthalmology, went from medical school to the Harvard School of Public Health, became an eye surgeon, spent the first 10 years of my career focused on, on blindness prevention. And along the way, really, you know, purely through happenstance, wound up at the, the very earliest days of outcomes research, healthcare data research, and that became my career. Along the way, a number of pharmaceutical companies came to me and said, we've been reading what you're doing, and we think that has huge implications for drug development. Would you work with us? And you know, little by little, I learned how to bring life-saving drugs to the market. Awesome. Well, certainly sounds like a, a pretty uh, exciting career with sort of many different facets to it. You know, I know many of our uh, listeners are always keen to hear about that sort of entrepreneurial journey and entrepreneurial path, especially having been a practicing physician, then now as a biotech entrepreneur. Any chance you could sort of walk us through uh, that sort of history and sort of what led you to your current role? I know that there's all sorts of emphasis on, you know, planning your life, planning your career, following that plan. And I'm probably the, the worst example one could imagine when it comes to, to that sort of discipline. And I, I think my life is, has been you know, a series of having opportunities come along, possibly because people saw what I had done in a previous opportunity. And when they've made sense, I've done them. I think what, what matters is not to have a, a plan for your career, but to have a, a purpose for your career. And as long as the opportunities you choose are consistent with that purpose, things are probably going to work out. You know, in my case, it's always been about not only how do you save lives, but I've always had a belief that if your approach to saving lives is aligned with economic reality, you've got a much better chance of making a difference than if it's not aligned with economic reality. Probably one of the, the first accidents that led to that, you know, point in time where I was a medical student, enormously idealistic, which I hope I still am, and had signed up to uh, do a, a project in India with one of the first hospitals that developed a, a mass surgery program for people who were blind from cataract. And at, at that point in, uh, in world history, 2% of the population of India was blind from cataract five times the prevalence of blindness anywhere else or most other places in the world. An extraordinary man, Dr. Venkataswamy, had started the very first Aravind Eye Hospital and you know, dreamed of doing 20,000 cataract surgeries in a year. And today, of course, the Aravind healthcare system is 50 facilities, 10 of which are, are real hospitals and the rest are various sorts of clinics. And they do about 500,000 cataracts a year. But this was, you know, back in the, in the very early days. And uh, I had both had this interest in ophthalmology, this interest in global health, 
found my way to uh, an extraordinary mentor named Alfred Sommer, who's now the Dean Emeritus of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And he directed me to this program in India and said, go spend a couple months there and come back and report on what's happening. And he said, well, do you mind if I think about some of the, the health economics of what's happening? He said, sure, you know, as long as you come back with the basic medical data. And I was explaining this to one of my professors at, at Cornell Medical School. And he said, well, what's the point in turning a, a blind beggar into a seeing beggar? Now, you know, say something like that to, you know, a 25-year-old you know, medical student, and it's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. But it made me so angry that I decided to, you know, figure it out and go figure out what was the point of turning a blind person into a seeing person. Because, of course, the hospital wasn't operating on, on people who, who begged for a living. They were mostly operating on people who could make 35 rupees a week by picking rice, but if they were blind, they couldn't make 35 rupees a week picking rice. And then their family had to take care of them. So we actually not only measured the medical results of what happened, we measured the economic results, not only for the individual person, but for the family, the effect of not having to have someone stay home and take care of a person who couldn't navigate the house or feed themselves without help. And uh, at the end of the day, turned out that the average person who was the beneficiary of surgery that was free for them, patients didn't pay for surgery, but it did cost about $5 a patient for a charitable foundation to support the surgery. At that point, most of the funding was coming from Helen Keller International. Turned out the average person who was the beneficiary of this $5 investment generated a 1,500% return in the first year. And we published that and then the World Bank came along and said, well, that's interesting. How would you like to write a chapter for our first book on disease control priorities in, in the developing world? Because, you know, of course, we know that childhood nutrition and oral rehydration and, you know, they named the other five things that everybody who goes to public health school hears about are the most important. But if we ever cure all of those problems, maybe we'll think about some things like cataracts. So I you know, pulled out the, the data from India and wrote it up and the World Bank economists went to work on it. And they called up a month later and said, you know, turns out that cataract surgery is one of the five most cost-effective healthcare interventions on the planet. And it led to about $5 billion of World Bank funding for building cataract surgery infrastructure. And today the rate of cataract blindness in India is half of what it was when I did that study in, in 1981. So I'm, I'm telling you that story, not to suggest that everybody ought to get interested in preventable blindness, but to suggest that if, if you set up a, sort of an operating principle and say, well, you know, what's important to me? We, we only get so much time on this planet. What are the things that matter to me? And, and then you, you follow that operating principle, you'll get to do some very interesting things in your career. And you certainly won't be looking forward to retirement. I have a 92-year-old dad who reads the New England Journal of Medicine every week before I do, and he's not looking forward to retirement. Just follow the operating principle and evaluate each opportunity according to it. That led me to, to work on the Clinton Healthcare Reform Task Force. I was sitting over at Georgetown University, kind of minding my business and seeing my patients and focused on my research. And a classmate of mine called up and said, you know, I'm here as a White House fellow, and I'm looking at 5,000 letters that physicians from around the country have written to Mrs. Clinton because they've heard that she's in charge of this new healthcare reform initiative. Uh, would you be willing to come over and help me out? 
And that led to you know, an extraordinary six-month engagement and you know, what could have been an interesting shot at healthcare reform. Part of the fun was, you know, even though President and Mrs. Clinton knew that I hadn't voted for them, they were you know, delighted to have me and I was delighted to work for them. Similarly, 9-11-2001, I was sitting in a business meeting. There was a you know, television that you could see through the windows of the conference room. And you know, all of a sudden, there was an aircraft going through a building. And you know, my response was to call a, a close friend who at the time had, had just joined the, the Bush administration and, and the Domestic Policy Council, say, well, you know, it looks like we're at war for the first time in, in my adult life. I need something to do. And that's how I wound up for really the first time thinking about biopreparedness. What might we do if there was ever a weaponized virus that got loose in the U.S. population? What are the you know, sorts of measures we might employ? Things that I'd never thought about in my life, certainly never thought about from a, a medical perspective. And you know, I spent a, a couple of years appointed to the office of the uh, Undersecretary of Defense. And, and in a large measure, that's why I recognized as early as I did uh, that COVID was going to be as big a problem as it's been. In fact, you know, in those you know, early years of the Bush administration between 2001 and 2003, we set up an infrastructure to not only anticipate, but you know, deal with this kind of calamity that unfortunately wasn't necessarily maintained as well as it might have been over the last 10 years. Interesting. And it sounds like obviously uh, your experience across both different indications and I guess biopreparedness perhaps has also informed how NeurRx has been uh, evolving. Well, NeuroRx, uh, it certainly informed how we're evolving. We started in a very different way. So, you know, while I've had this career where I've gone from, you know, very interesting, but, you know, ultimately time-limited project to another, you know, the constants in my life have been my involvement in the Johns Hopkins faculty and, you know, my ongoing involvement in, in the ophthalmology world, even though I don't get to practice ophthalmology anymore. I've, I've gone and done very different things. I've run health IT companies. I've, I've done startup pharma companies. My brother, on the other hand, has done one thing and done it extraordinarily well. So Dan Javitt is a, uh, a psychiatrist, professor at Columbia. He's a year behind me at Princeton, a lot smarter. I did a degree in neurobiology got to medical school expecting to be a neurologist and was kind of shocked to find out that neurologists at the time weren't very interested in the chemistry or the biology of the brain. They were fascinated by structural problems in the brain. They were interested in Parkinson's. They were certainly you know, interested in Alzheimer's, but had very limited interest in neurochemistry, whereas you know, Dan ran into a couple of really smart, talented psychiatrists who convinced them that the future of psychiatry, which is probably the most you know, dismal profession in medicine at the time, the future of psychiatry would be applied neurochemistry. So he decided to go into psychiatry and found himself doing his psychiatry training at the Bronx Psychiatric Center at the height of what was then called the angel dust epidemic in the Bronx point in time where just about every bag of marijuana for sale in the Bronx was contaminated with fencyclidine because fencyclidine could make a bag of pencil shavings seem like potent marijuana. The only problem is it causes acute schizophrenia in a certain number of people who get exposed to it. 
So Dan and all the other psychiatry residents at the Bronx Psychiatric Center were seeing a parade of people brought in by the police who you know, thought they'd smoked a joint and woke up in the loony bin. Now, all of his co-residents basically shrugged and said, okay, another person got dusted. We're, we're going to lock him up for three days and hopefully he'll come back down to earth. Dan was the one who said, well, gee, this is interesting. We have this drug that reliably causes schizophrenia in human beings. Maybe if we could figure out where it binds in the brain, we might understand something about the molecular basis of schizophrenia. So when he wasn't seeing patients, went into the lab and began to work on that and discovered the fencyclidine binding site in the NMDA receptor, which is you know, something that nobody was really very interested in in 1987. But you know, it was an interesting enough finding that he you know, got his first research grants around it and went into an academic career, became an assistant professor, associate professor. In fact, it, you know, today he's probably the, the best published person in this field of psychiatry, this area of neurochemistry of schizophrenia. And according to Google Scholar, one of the you know, top 1,000 published scientists in the world, it turns out that not only does this receptor in the brain have a lot of impact on schizophrenia, if you block the NMDA receptor, you can cause acute schizophrenia, but also on depression. So, you know, think of the NMDA receptor sort of as the, the brake pedal of the brain. You know, if it's wide open, your thoughts slow to a crawl and you don't have many new thoughts per minute. So you tend to ruminate on those thoughts that you have and think about them over and over again. And often they're fairly destructive thoughts like, you know, I'm an imposter and people are going to find out when they find out. I'll be ruined and my career will be over and then I'll lose my job and I won't be able to feed my family. So maybe killing myself is a good option. And that's actually exactly what happened to a, a dear friend of mine who at the time was at the top of his career in neurology, had just gotten a $10 million endowed research center to run, probably thought of as, as the world's expert on pain control research. But that kind of chemical development in the brain is lethal. Now, on the other end, if you sort of put a cork in the NMDA receptor, then your thoughts are racing so fast that you can't connect one thought to the other. And there's a Martian outside the door and I'm going to have you know, a Venusian for lunch. And by the way, the Russians are listening to me on my radio. That's the effect of plugging the NMDA receptor with something like concyclidine. Well, it turns out that this is really the key to suicidal depression. And the discovery got made because Rob Berman at Yale was investigating this pathway that Dan had discovered and giving ketamine to supposedly normal volunteers in order to induce hallucination. And lo and behold, they came back the next day and said, you know, whatever you gave me yesterday, I need some more of it because I've been depressed for the last 20 years. I feel great. And that's how the whole ketamine depression discovery was made. And, you know, Dan took a look at this and said, well, you know, that's fine. The only problem is ketamine is neurotoxic. It kills brain cells. It's hallucinogenic. It's highly addictive. Can't be given by mouth. Causes blood pressure spikes. Causes vomiting. Other than that, it's a wonderful drug. Maybe we can find some drugs that will modulate the NMDA receptor in a slightly more controllable manner. And they could be really effective antidepressants. Well, that, that's not a very new thought right now. But you know, back in the early 2000s, when Dan had that thought, it was quite a novel thought. 
and he began working on a, a molecule called decycloserine, which was a 50-year-old tuberculosis drug. And you know, in fact, George Crane, who was working in the Bronx at a psychiatric hospital, had reported that it was an antidepressant back in 1959. But he also said, don't use it as an antidepressant because it might be able to cause hallucinations. So you know, Dan was doing this work and it was enormously exciting work. I was proud of the work he was doing. I enjoyed talking to him about it, but yeah, I never thought of it as having anything to do with me until that friend I just told you about went and hanged himself. Because, you know, he had convinced himself that that was the logical thing to do, given that he knew he was an imposter and everybody was going to find out. And I said, dang, you've really got to develop this. This has to turn into a drug. And he said, I know I'm talking to, and he, you know, over the next four years, named six major pharmaceutical companies, except that each time he got close to licensing the drug to them, the person he was talking to, I got, you know, bad news, which is that we're not going to license your drug. And by the way, they're you know closing down psychiatry. So if you know anybody who wants to hire someone like me, let me know. So by 2015, everybody, you know, Merck, GSK, Roche, AstraZeneca, Pfizer had closed their psychiatry divisions. In fact, the chief commercial officer of NeuroRx, Robert Besthoff, was the final global VP of commercial for Pfizer's neuroscience and pain division. Everybody got out of psychiatry. So uh, that's the point at which Dan and I sat down and said, well, if nobody's going to develop this drug, and if there's no treatment for these people other than electroshock therapy, let's start a company. Hmm. And that's how NeuroRx was founded. That's amazing. One quick question I have is, you know, as you look at the space, you had mentioned that other drugs like ketamine had, you know, are cytotoxic in the brain. Uh, how do you think about the delivery and the toxicity in such a hard to treat indication? Well, the, the, those are two separate and very challenging questions. You're pointing out that ketamine does not get absorbed very well as an oral medication. It has to be given IV. And also that it's, it's neurotoxic. And, and the FDA has woken up to this. When we first talked to the FDA about cycloserine, they said, you know, you've got to do these neurotoxicity studies. And that seemed very weird because decycloserine had been used to treat tuberculosis in tens of millions of people, and nobody had ever reported anything about neurotoxicity. And you know, we said that to FDA and said, why don't you, you know, give us a wave? And they said, just trust us. You're going to need to do it. So we, we went and did it. And we actually did it at a, a company called Wuxi Aptek. And we were uh, sitting in the client's room talking about the uh, experiments we were going to run the next day with the company. And this fax comes in from the FDA saying, you know, we told you to use Bielchowski silver stain, but you know, now we want you to use the fluorojade stain on the sections of brain that you're going to slice. And I said, that's weird. I've ne I never imagined that, you know, FDA would get so granular about something. He said, okay, we're going to do the experiment. We're going to do it the way FDA says, but I'll tell you what, Instead of having your pathologists you know, look at the, the brain specimens we're going to get, let's find the best veterinary neuropathologist we can find and have him read the brains. So we did that. And you know, I woke up one morning and realized how important this was going to be to our shareholders. So I said, you know what, I better go look through the microscope with him just so I can see what we're talking about. So I you know, schlepped myself out to Mason, Ohio and sat down at Veterinary Pathology Services. And tip for your listeners, if you ever want a pathologist to tell you everything he knows, just sit down at the microscope. In fact, he told me that he'd been in the business for 40 years and he'd never seen a pharma company CEO before. You know, he walked me through the brain slices and said, you know, I don't know what's going on at the FDA, but 
and I haven't one, done one of these neurotoxicity studies in decades, but all of a sudden I've got 10 of them stacked up to read. And it's a good thing you came along when you did, because otherwise you'd be waiting another six months to get on my microscope. But the really strange thing is 10 weeks ago, I was on the phone with 15 FDA toxicologists and they all wanted me to tell them how to do one of these studies. And I said, that Bielchowski silver stain is completely obsolete. You've got to tell everybody to use Fluorogate. So sometimes it's a question of being in the right place at the right time. Well, we now know that all of these NMDA antagonists, the ones that directly block the channel, have very real potential for neurotoxicity. And uh, our drug cyclosyrian has no potential for neurotoxicity. We actually took it all the way up to its lethal dose. And you know, even table salt has a lethal dose. Lethal dose of uh, decyclosyrian is probably less toxic than table salt from that perspective. And we saw no neurotoxicity. Doesn't harm brain cells. But ketamine clearly harms brain cells. People are talking a lot about dextromethorphan. Dextromethorphan is neurotoxic. We don't yet know about dimethadone. But any of these direct NMDA channel blockers have real potential for neurotoxicity. In fact, FDA issued new guidance just last year requiring formal neurotoxicity testing in any NMDA-targeted antidepressant. Wow. Interesting. Uh, but with, with us heading for the market, with Axone heading for the market, with J&J already in the market, with esketamine, it's clear that the next generation of antidepressants are going to target the NMDA receptor, only with increasing precision and decreasing side effects. But you know, we've been looking at the SSRI mechanism of treating depression for 50 years, and it's run out of gas. SSRI antidepressants work a little bit. They uh, clearly have a propensity to cause suicide, and we have a whole new target, and it's going to be a very exciting era for neuropsychiatry. So I'm, I'm glad that NeuroRx is in on the foundation of that. Yeah, it sounds like you're at the tip of the spear, the beginning of that wave, which is great. Now, you know, switching gears a little bit from uh, our prior discussion, it sounds like the NeuroRx um, portfolio has expanded a little bit recently, especially in light of COVID-19. And some new programs have come to the forefront that might not have been part of the original plan. We thought we were going to be focused on pulmonary disease. We might not have named the company NeuroRx, but you know, sometimes you have to look past that and look at opportunities as they come along. And you know, one of the, the challenges of the pandemic is we realized last February that you just can't do a psychiatry trial with suicidal patients in the middle of a pandemic because the minute you take a patient into a clinical trial, you're responsible for everything that happens to them. And when you can't get them into a clinic where you, you, you're not sure you can follow them properly, that's just a, a huge responsibility and not one that you can honor. And just about the time we were telling our team that we might have to stand down for a couple of months, one of our uh, investors came along and said, you know, we have this company in Switzerland, Relief Therapeutics, and we thought we sold the last asset in the company, but it turns out they got one more drug in the file cabinets and it may have something to do with COVID. Would you take a look at it? And one of their scientists, Eve Sago, sent me a slide deck and showed me why VIP, vasoactive intestinal peptide, could have very direct benefit to COVID based on work that had been done by Professor Sami Saeed at Stony Brook University back between 2000 and 2005. And Sami was a man who grew up in, in Cairo, son of a, a Coptic minister, 
came to the United States, partly seeking religious freedom. And because, as you know, the Coptic community hasn't necessarily done very well in Egypt. Early on, developed tuberculosis and was cured of it. But it really gave him a, a lifelong interest in pulmonary disease. So, you know, as, as a you know, young physician, he was able to win a fellowship in pulmonary medicine at Johns Hopkins, which probably wasn't an easy thing to do for somebody who'd been in this country for you know, two years, but he did and uh, went on to a distinguished career in pulmonary medicine. And back in 1970, set out to discover the hormone that he knew had to be there that causes profound drop in blood pressure in people who get uh, blood clots in the lung, pulmonary embolus. So he went off to the Karolinska Institute and began looking for this hormone in lungs of animals that he you know, bought from slaughterhouses. Problem is it's you know, hard to buy a ton of lung because lung doesn't weigh very much. And with the biochemical techniques of the day, you needed a tremendous amount of tissue in order to find a hormone that's only present in microgram quantities. So he you know, did the next best thing. He knew that there was some of this hormone in the intestinal tract, so you can buy tons of intestines. So that's exactly what he did. And he isolated this hormone, which he tried to call very important peptide, but the editors of Nature wouldn't let him do that. So he called it vasoactive intestinal peptide. And you know, that's why we have a drug that is 70% concentrated in the human lung, but it's named for the intestine. And it turns out that you know, in the lung, it's the agent that has protected the lining of the lung from all sorts of injuries for as long as air-breathing mammals have walked the earth. People talk about things being conserved in nature. If an enzyme, a hormone can be improved, Somewhere along the course of evolution, it gets improved so that, you know, older species tend to have more primitive forms than newer species, than more highly evolved species. But in the case of BIP, uh, nobody's ever really identified variants of BIP that have evolved throughout uh, the course of nature. It's a peptide that does its job extraordinarily well, and it only binds to one cell in the lung, which is called the alveolar type 2 cell but that's the cell that makes all the surfactant in the lung. And without surfactant, you can't transmit oxygen from the air into the blood. Think about fish. Fish don't really have a lot of problems absorbing oxygen. They've got all of these little cellular protrusions from their gills. The seawater washes over. Seawater doesn't have nearly as much oxygen as the air does, but there's enough oxygen that it diffuses across from the seawater into the fish's bloodstream and the fish can swim along and eat other fish. It's a very trouble-free existence. The problem is you take the fish out of water and suddenly the gills are exposed to a ton of oxygen because there's lots of oxygen in the air and the fish dies. The fish suffocates because the direct toxic effect of those gases on the gills is completely debilitating to the epithelial cells that cover the gills and oxygen doesn't go across. And that's called respiratory failure. And the reason I'm giving you that physiology lecture is because that's what happens in COVID. The way air-breathing mammals became air-breathing mammals was they evolved a mechanism to sort of bring the ocean onto land with them. If you look at the human lung, you know, instead of the protrusions from the gills flapping out in the seawater, the lung has these air sacs where the you know, air's on the inside, the blood vessels are on the outside. And you've got this fluid layer that coats the inside of those air sacs called alveoli. And that fluid layer 
only exists because of surfactant. So, you know, surfactant is kind of like dish soap. You put a drop of water on a dish, it rolls off. Put a tiny bit of dish soap on the water, and all of a sudden the water coats the whole dish. Well, that's what happens inside the human lung. And because of that fluid layer, you're able to take toxic gases called oxygen and, and other gases out of the atmosphere, bring them across the lung epithelium into your bloodstream, and now you can go about your metabolic business. And when that fails, when that unit fails, it's called respiratory failure. People imagine respiratory failure has something to do with not being able to breathe, and it has nothing to do with not being able to breathe. It has to do with being able to breathe just fine, but the oxygen that you're breathing doesn't get into your bloodstream. And nobody really thought all too much about this until COVID-19 came along. And all of a sudden, very large numbers of human beings started dying because it turns out the SARS-CoV-2 virus in humans, not many other species that we know, in humans, binds to these alveolar type 2 cells, enters those cells, kills those cells, and now you've got a lung that can't make surfactant and can't transmit oxygen. And that's what kills people in COVID-19. If that doesn't happen to you, if the virus doesn't get down into your lungs, if it doesn't kill your type 2 alveolar cells, you know, COVID was nothing worse than a, you know, a bad cold. But if it does happen, it's devastating. Our, our drug uh, works very differently than all of the other drugs in development for COVID. You've got a couple of antivirals like remdesivir that try to kill the virus and don't do it very well. You've got people treating with steroids and other inflammatories. And it is true there's an inflammatory component to COVID. There's no question that you, know, you liberate cytokines and, and you ought to do something about that. But the notion that people die of COVID because they have cytokine storm turns out pretty much to be untrue. It, it was a good story if you happen to have a, a cytokine drug that you wanted to develop for COVID, but it hasn't been the answer to the epidemic because one anti-cytokine after another has failed. On the other hand, there does seem to be more and more evidence that if you can protect these alveolar type 2 cells, you can do a lot of good. The reason the virus gets into the type 2 cells is because the human beings, unlike other species, have ACE2 receptors, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptors on the surface of the cell, and the virus binds right to that, and that's how it gets into the cell. And once it's in the cell, it makes lots of copies of itself. It's called viral replication. It does liberate cytokines, which creates this huge inflammatory process in the lung, and it wipes out surfactant production. Well, our drug, VIP, enters the cell through a specific receptor binding, blocks viral replication, increases surfactant production, blocks cytokine synthesis, and prevents viral-induced cell death called cytopathy. So you know, if you wanted a drug that actually went after the very mechanism by which COVID kills people, this does that. If you went to a drug developer and said, you know, make me a small molecule that blocks viral replication, blocks cytokine production, block cytopathy and makes the cell make more surfactant, he'd look at you and say, you're crazy. I, I can't do a molecule like that. Well, human beings can't, but nature could and did. Interesting. So it sounds like that's been the transition, I guess, for you all from psychiatry into COVID. That is how we wound up where we are. <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say that the world as a whole hopes that you're successful in that endeavor, both in terms of how 101 is attacking suicidal depression, but then also in terms of preventing respiratory failure. And from what I've heard so far, it sounds like something that's obviously relevant in terms of COVID, but also other circumstances of respiratory failure as well. Remember that Sammy Saeed did his original work 
on sepsis-induced respiratory distress. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, once we've cured COVID and everybody's vaccinated, and of course we know there will never be another coronavirus that comes and threatens humanity, <laughs> just because you know we've already dealt with SARS and MERS, and this is only the third, and this virus is a lot smarter than we are. But assuming the coronavirus has never come back to bite us again, there will still be 50,000 Americans who die of the flu next year. We're in the process of partnering with NIH to learn about whether our drug blocks the flu's mechanism for killing you. There will be 250,000 Americans who die of ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome related to bacterial sepsis. And when Dr. Saeed did his work, He treated eight patients with sepsis and ARDS. Seven of those patients got better and left the ICU. Six of them actually walked out of the hospital alive. One had a heart attack after five or six weeks. And these were eight people who were uh, given very little prognosis for recovery. So yes, there's an awful lot to do with VIP, but it's really been the COVID pandemic that provided the impetus and the financing to move it from uh, from concept to clinic. We moved from concept to clinic in 10 weeks with a lot of help from the FDA. It's amazing. Well, you know, I think given that we're sort of at the end of the time here, Jonathan would love to thank you for uh, joining us today, sharing both about your pretty impressive career along with some of the exciting programs you've developed at NeuroRx. We certainly wish you all the best and look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.